so in the last two Sundays, this being the third Sunday that we've been meeting, the last two Sundays we've approached the book of Acts with kind of the working title or theme of uh, principles or beginnings of a church. And so we've been looking as we work through Acts um, just at some of the key points that we see in Acts uh, that give us kind of a foundation or a way to think about or to approach uh, church. And the way we use the word church is we mean that as a collective. Um, we mean that on two levels. Of course, we have kind of what we might do here in Atlanta, what another group might do in Birmingham or what another group might do in Starkville or whatever. We mean that locally. We also mean that in the sense broadly of any church that is the Lord's would do these things. And then we also mean church in the sense of an individual. If you're going to be a Christian, a member of the Lord's church, you're going to do these things. And so there's kind of multiple ways that principles of a church can be applied, but are true throughout all three of those senses. And so as we look, uh, we did Acts chapters 1 and 2. Richard did that one. He gave us some principles out of those two chapters that a church would follow. And then... Last week we did Acts chapters 3 through 5, and we looked at several principles the church follows in Acts. And this, uh, today we're going to look at Acts chapter 6, and we're going to try to get all the way through chapter 8. Uh, so we're going to do three more chapters, and again we're going to look at principles we see in these three chapters for the church. Um, and again, keep in mind church can mean any one of those three things, and I think I'm going to try to define each time as we go through those principles, how they apply in those separate ways. All right, so Acts chapter 6, James read, read uh, the beginning passage, the first seven verses for us, uh, first thing for our scripture reading. And so the format here as we've been going through is not to read every verse in every chapter, but to kind of have the background, the understanding of where we're coming from, where we make these principles out of the text, and then to see our principles. And so hopefully... Uh, even if we don't touch on the context as thoroughly as you may wonder about or as you may desire, since we're doing a textual study, you can go back and see the context for yourself. And if the principles don't align with the context that you're seeing, of course, you can always bring that to our t attention and be happy to talk with you about why maybe I thought of these things or got these out of this. Um, so anyway, feel free to ask questions, make comments after the lesson. I'd be interested if you have any. All right, so Acts chapter 6 we're picking up right after a series of um, persecutions happened, particularly, particularly to Peter and a couple of the other uh, disciples. And each time, in Acts chapter uh, 4, they were confronted with opposition, and they preached the gospel and didn't back down from it. In Acts chapter 5, the same thing happens. They preach the gospel, they don't back down from it, and in fact... Uh, as we had written on our chalkboard and we had discussed the other, the other evening, in Acts chapter 4, they basically say, there's things that we've seen and heard that we can't help but speak about. And of course, they're referring to the things that they know through Jesus Christ and the gospel therein. And so that's what we're building on in Acts chapter 6 when it reads in the very first verse, now in these days, the days of this early church, the days of this persecution that they're succeeding and being faithful through, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose by the Hellenists uh, against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
One observation I would like to make, this is not the principle, um, though I think it could be one, is times where maybe persecution staves off from the outside, Satan's going to work from the inside, right? We see that happening to the church here. Satan comes at it with outside groups. He comes at it with Roman authorities and high priests. And now he's coming at it from within the church, causing division in the group. Uh, But the principle that I want us to see in these verses is a church takes care of Christians in need. Um, We've talked a little bit about how the gospel is to go out to those who are needy. We saw the lame beggar. We saw those who are spiritually needy in the temple in chapter uh, 3. But now we're going to see within the group, within the Christians, there were those who were needy and didn't really have a means of providing for themselves. And there was an expectation by God for that to be taken care of. And so certainly we see that principle in Acts chapter 6. Look again in verses 1 through 3, beginning in verse 2. And so this, this complaint arises. There are Greek Jews, and there are, uh, I guess you could say, true Jews. right? They're Hellenists. And I think that's the Jews that speak Greek, and then there's Jews who speak Hebrew. And so there's a complaint. There's already kind of a division there. You can imagine the cultural differences that that might create. Uh, we feel that in our society with different people. And so that creates a problem. And there's an unequal distribution of aid or help being given to Christians within the group. And so in verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. All right, so I think it's pretty plain that we see Christians were expected to fulfill this responsibility. Not only were they needy people in a general sense, like an individual responsibility of a Christian is to help the people around them, but I mean on a corporate level, as a church in this place, they were expected to help their own. And we see that illustrated here in Acts chapter 6. In fact, you could turn, and I, this is one of the few passages we'll turn to outside of Acts, um, 1 Timothy chapter 5. Um, if you want to look at this, I think this just kind of gives us some insight, maybe why these people were helped. Um, Acts chapter 5. And we're going to look, I mean not Acts chapter 5, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has, a chi- has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. All right, so here we have some further teaching, and this comes later down the road, but I think this is consistent with what we're seeing in Acts. We see widows, Christian widows, obviously, is kind of one of the parameters here. We see Christians who have lost their means of support. You know, maybe they had a husband that passed away um, who would have been significant in aiding them in help. And apparently they don't have any kind of family near them to help them out. And so Christians, who are brothers and sisters who had become their family, had a responsibility to help them. Um, And we see that in Acts chapter 6. So we see... That they were truly widows, you know, they had no one else to care for them. They couldn't care for themselves, and they had no one else to care for them. And so there it fell on the Lord's people to care for their own. And so certainly we see how that displays qualities of God in that. 
God always takes care of his people. Um, and so that is one of the principles of the church that we see in Acts chapter 6 in the beginning verses. But immediately after that, there's a second principle that we see in Acts chapter 6, and that is in the church, or in a church, everyone has a role. Um, we see that really pretty evident in how they handle um, taking care of their own. First, the problem arises and comes to, um, it says in verse 2, the, uh, the apostles' ears. It says that this complaint or problem got into their uh, ears and they heard about it. And the twelve respond and they say, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Alright, so there that tells us they had a responsibility that they didn't need to shirk. They had a role or a position that they played within the church. The apostles had a specific task, and of course we could go to several passages that maybe talk about the task that they had been given. Acts chapter 1 really is a good indicator of that. We saw in Acts chapter uh, 1, really early on when Jesus says, you know, stay in Jerusalem. But then you're going to end up going to Judea and Samaria, and the gospel's going to end up going everywhere. We see at the end of the gospels, they were commissioned to take the gospel to anywhere in the world, to the ends of the earth, right? And so they had a pretty clear role. And they realized that this would be a hindrance to that rule. Being locked into this one place, serving this in this way, would be a hindrance to what they've really been given to do. But it didn't negate the necessity or the goodness of this thing. It just wasn't their role to fill. And I think that's an important thing. Sometimes uh, we see that there maybe are several roles that need to be filled within a church. And we think maybe one is lesser and one is better. And that's not really the case. They're just different. Different people need to serve different roles. The apostles had an important role that they weren't qualified or capable to do because they had to travel. They couldn't stay there and do that thing. But look at verse 3. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good report, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And so there were people that could fill this role. And I think that's another important thing is sometimes maybe we see things that need to get done and we expect other people to do them. You know, we need to ask ourselves, am I somebody that can fill that role? Am I qualified to fill that role? And certainly there are roles that have very specific qualifications like we see in Acts. But there are people that need to step up to that and be able to fulfill those roles and meet those qualifications. So God has an expectation that everyone will have a role in a church. You might not fill every role, but you're going to find a role that you fit into and you're going to fit it and fill it. Um, and so we certainly see that principle moving forward in Acts chapter 6. We're going to see that the apostles fulfill their role in carrying out the message all through Acts. We're going to see the local Christians fulfill their role in supporting the gospel and helping each other. And they do that. And when all parts are doing what they uh, are given, we see the, the church really functioning as it ought to. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, um, if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and this is the last passage outside of Acts that we're going to turn to, really gives us kind of uh, an image to view the church as, kind of a picture to see the church as to help us understand this idea of having different roles. And it's really given in a pretty simple way. Uh, Acts chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. 
For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong in the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many body parts, yet one body. So again, I think that's a just maybe a clearer picture of how God is intending this to function. You know, practically and in a spiritual sense, we're one body, we're one spirit, there's one baptism, there's one Lord Jesus Christ who's over all and in all and through all. But practically speaking, you know, James and I aren't one person. He's James, I'm Josh. You know, Richard and I aren't one person. I'm not the same as Anita or Angela. I'm not the same as Sarah or Robin or Paulette or Kirby. We each can kind of do different things. We're different people. And the Lord recognizes that. And I think that's why the apostles have their position. And we see Stephen and men like him have their position. And we certainly see even widows had their position. Even children had their position. Even wives had their position. Husbands had their position. Everyone is contributing to the building up of this one member, this one body. And of course, we looked at a passage last week that showed us that Christ is the head of that body. So again, church takes care of the Christians in need. Church, in a church, everyone has a role. And moving into Acts chapter 7, and I think this is important, and we'll talk about the context a little bit. So Stephen is pointed out as being a man full of faith in verse 5 of chapter 6, and he's one of the seven appointed to help take care of these widows. He's a man full of faith, of the Holy Spirit. In verse uh, 8, it says he's full of grace and power. He's working many signs and wonders. And then some of the, the synagogue come and persecute Stephen. And they bring him basically to trial, and they set up false witnesses, which seems to be a common habit among the, uh, the members of the synagogue. And so they set up false witnesses, and they accuse this man of several things. And I want us to note kind of the things that he's accused of. And at the end of chapter 6, it says um, in verse 11, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Okay, so there's kind of two separate accusations. Blasphemous words against Moses, blasphemous words against God. And then they continue on in verse 13, to say, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. All right? And so, again, so that's kind of the the four basic accusations that they make. He blasphemes against Moses. He blasphemes against God. He speaks against the holy place. He speaks against the law. All right? So Stephen could say any number of things to defend himself in this. Obviously, these are bogus, bogus accusations. They have no foundation, and so it'd be easy just to go, you know, whatever, I'm not listening to that. Here's what you need to know. But I think one principle that the church needs to follow, and I think Stephen demonstrates here, is that a church listens. 
and there's a lot of reasons for why that makes sense, and there's a lot of reasons for why that is a prudent thing to do, and we certainly see them demonstrated in Stephen. Uh, look with me in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 7. Actually, uh, not verses 13 through 15. Let's actually look at verses, verse 11. All right, so remember those four accusations. And in verse 11, Stephen is speaking. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died. He and our fathers, they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had brought or bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. Um, and so he continues on with this story. He hits on Joseph, he hits on Abraham. Verse 22. And Moses was instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. All right? And so he continues to speak well of Moses as he preaches um, to these false witnesses and to those in the synagogue. And then as he continues on, he even speaks well of God um, in verse, where am I? I think I wrote down the wrong verse here. Um, Yeah, so he continues to speak well of Moses, and he continues to speak well of God. Look again at verse uh, 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So again, he recognizes who Moses is. He recognizes that God is the sender and the one with the authority to send, and it was his message that was sent. So again, he continues to play on what they said. You know, he's not only bringing them the message they need to hear, he's bringing it in a way that they need to hear it. And I think that shows us that Stephen really listened to what they were saying, even though it had no foundation, even though it had no reason to be said. He listened to them. And as we continue on in these accusations, um... He continues to speak well of the tabernacle or the temple of God. If you work with me down, um, beginning in verse 44, he talks about kind of the evolution of that, how it started as a tent and the tabernacle. It became the temple of God. In verse uh, 46, talking about David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High, again speaking well of God, does not dwell in houses made by hands. So again, he's respecting the temple. It was the dwelling place of God, but there was something better. It really wasn't the place he was meant to be forever. Um, And then ultimately, even though they claim that he speaks blasphemies against Moses, he speaks blasphemies against God, all through this, He's responding well to the law. He's appealing to the covenant of Abraham. He's appealing to the things that Moses brought. Um, He's appealing to uh, how he dealt with um, David and to Solomon. 
And so again, you can see all these instances of him having listened to their accusations. And so I think as a church, that's important. You know, as people say things, or as we have conversations with people, you know, we don't need to just dismiss them and their thoughts and their feelings and their, the things that they say because they're wrong or they're weird or whatever. I think it's prudent and in our best interest. And the Bible seems to show us that it's really important to listen to people. And that really paints us a picture of how we need to respond to them. But it brings us to our next principle. It didn't change him from saying what needed to be said, needed to be said. And that's really a big principle for the church, right? Even though we listen to people and we take into account what they're saying to us, and that can kind of shape our response, it doesn't change the truths that need to be told. Um, Stephen didn't change the message. He just maybe approached it in a way that he might not have if he had been talking to somebody else. Um, he still brought the message, the gospel, but he just brought it through Moses, through God, through the temple, and through the law. He showed them the progression. Um, and so I think that's really important. And look at verses uh, 51 through 53 of chapter 7. Verses 51 through 53 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's really the crux of all this, right? We're getting to this point maybe because some things they said were going different ways, but we get to what they need to hear. Um, and I think Stephen really demonstrates that for us. Um, and I think it shows us that not only do we need to not be afraid to speak the truths that need to be said, um, it really, Stephen shows us that it's not inappropriate and it's not impossible to see somebody's fruit. Um, you know, he's not judging motives here. He's not, as some people might term it, he's not claiming to know their hearts, but he's saying, this is what you did. And this is how you acted, which is not in keeping with the truth. And so Stephen wasn't fearful of saying that, and he wasn't scared to do it, not even when it meant his own death. And I think that's kind of the ultimate way we can show our conviction to something, is if somebody says, you're going to die if you believe this, do you still believe it? And Stephen says, yeah, sure, and I'm willing to speak to it. I mean, he does, and it ends up killing him. Um, and I, but I think that's a really important principle for us to understand on three levels. You know, the universal church needs to not be afraid to speak truth. This group here needs to not be afraid to speak truth. But each of us individually, as we walk at our works or in our lives or the people we bump into, we need to not be afraid to speak the things that need to be said. Um, all right. And so moving forward, from this, you know, what is the gospel? We talk about, we've, we've all probably heard it said that the gospel literally means good news. Well, there really can't be any good news without anything to contrast it against, right? What's good if there's not bad? And so I think Stephen really understood that. He, he had to let them know that there was some bad in their lives before there could be any good. And so we can't be afraid to let people know, you know, there's some bad stuff going on here. Maybe you've done this wrong, or people are doing this wrong, or this is a problem in society, or this is a trouble or a sin that you have in your life. Here's the good news. And that's really the gospel, right? It's a reclamation of your soul from the bad things you've done. 
And so Stephen understood that. The next principle is a church has life and death. Um, We certainly see that illustrated through Jesus is the only way we even have spiritual life. Through his death, we have that life. But even in our physical deaths, it's really a door to what true life is. When we end our life here, it's just the beginning of having real life um, with Jesus Christ. And certainly Stephen understood that, or why else would he speak up when people threaten his life? Um, Look at this next section of text in Acts chapter 7. Verse 54, when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I don't know all the reasons why things are recorded for us. I don't have like the mind of God to know all of those things. But I can't help but think this wasn't so much recorded for Stephen's good, right? I mean, he didn't see it recorded. I think this is the Lord affirming the truths that Stephen knew. You know, Stephen was a man full of the Spirit, and he died believing in something. And this is God saying what Stephen did and what Stephen believed is absolutely correct. You know, Stephen really was the only person privy to what he saw. I mean, he was the one that looked up and saw Jesus, the clouds parted, and he saw Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. Nobody else really saw that, but God recorded it for us to let us know it's there, that that's a truth. Um, And so we need to understand, just like Stephen did, that it's only through death that we have life. Um, And a church has life in death. It works both ways. And so we need to view death not so much as an end, but a beginning. And it's a natural cycle that we have to go through. And Stephen understood that. I mean, look at what he said. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And we're only left to assume that that happened. Um, We have no reason to believe otherwise. I have a quote here, and I normally don't do this, um, from George MacDonald. He lived kind of in the early 1900s. I don't really know much about him, other than that C.S. Lewis liked him a lot, so he quoted him a lot. And so that's why I know about this quote. But anyway, somebody had asked him a question, and this was his response, talking about children. He said, never tell a child you have a soul. Teach your child, or teach him, you are a soul, you have a body. And I kind of feel like Stephen understands that truth kind of in the gospel. Inherently, he understood that he had a soul, right? He was a soul, and that upon his death, he got to be with his Lord. Um, And so that's something the church needs to understand if we're going to be what God wants us to be, because it empowers us to do the things that Stephen did. All right, so uh, the sixth of seven principle is a church doesn't restrict the gospel. Um, In Acts chapter 8, we see potential for that. Um, You know, several things happen between uh, Stephen being kind of the first martyr of Christians. He's the first Christian that dies for his faith in all of history. And that causes some upheaval, and that causes people to flee Jerusalem, and... uh, 
Christians kind of dispersed from there, which I think was obviously part of the Lord's plan. He wanted the gospel to get out. But in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 14, we have, well, beginning in verse 9, but we're going to read starting in verse 14. We have this guy named Simon who's a magician. He comes to be a believer. He ends up following the Lord. Um, But he's from an area that culturally and politically was kind of disjointed with Israel. Samaria. They had some differences. Um, they thought they had it figured out. Israel, I mean, religiously, they thought they had it, had it figured out. Israel thought they had it figured out. They butted heads. Remember, Jesus kind of caused some waves. He stirred up some trouble when he went through Samaria because people didn't want him to do that. Um, and so we, here we have Simon, this magician nonetheless, also Samaritan, receiving the gospel. And I think it's interesting that... Um, they taught him the gospel. Right? I mean, I think there would have been some discord here and some weird feelings, to say the least. But those who brought the gospel to Simon didn't choose not to give it to him. You know, right? We wouldn't even, what, what kind of story would we have if we find out about Simon the magician, um, but Peter and John uh, fail to ever teach him? You know, what kind of story would we have here if that were the case? You know, I'm not really sure. I don't know how to suppose that. But Peter and John didn't take it into their hands to decide if he was worthy of the gospel. They just gave it to him, right? And they knew that, in fact, Jesus had said, take the gospel to all ends of the earth. And specifically in Acts chapter 1, he said the order in which it was going to happen, right? First in Jerusalem, then in Judea. Am I getting that reversed? First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then Samaria, then all the earth. I mean, he said the stages it was going to happen in, and they didn't fight that. I don't know what the modern-day equivalent is to that for us. I mean, we all probably have some things in our own minds about who it would be difficult to teach the gospel to, but whatever you think of for your life, that's what the Samaritans were to the Israelites. It would have been really difficult to let them have this. I mean, Gentiles in general, but Samaritans especially. The church doesn't need to pick and choose and restrict the gospel to anyone just because we're not comfortable with them. The gospel is for anyone who's willing to listen to it. And because look at verse 20 of Acts chapter 8. But Peter said to him, speaking to Simon, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part... uh, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. All right. So, this is my last principle for this lesson, and that is a church isn't perfect. You know, on the universal scale, on the local scale, on an individual scale, the church isn't perfect. Right? I'm not perfect, you're not perfect, this group's not perfect. Uh, really, if on an individual level it's not perfect, it's not going to get any more perfect getting bigger. In fact, it'll probably get less perfect getting bigger. Um, but that's just it, right? The, the church, the individual, the Christian is not perfect because we're humans, we make mistakes. We decide to abandon God in instances. We talked about Peter this morning. He abandoned Jesus 
and some crucial moments, Peter was able to repent and turn around and change his life and be faithful to the Lord just as we are. But he still had that blemish. You know, he's had to be forgiven that moment. He had to be forgiven his decisions that he made. The church isn't perfect, and we certainly see that as Simon is taught the gospel. It almost seems like, man, he turns around and just makes a silly mistake by asking if he can purchase the power of the Holy Spirit with money. And that was Peter's response to him. Look at it again, verse 20. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could attain the gift of God, the free gift of God, with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right for God. And look what he prescribes. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if it's possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And look at how, why Peter's response is so strong is because he can see what sin is. I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You know, that kind of sums us all up in a way, right? I mean, we've all had those moments where we say, I need to pray and repent, you know, and because I'm in a place that's not good. I'm bound by iniquity or bound by sin. I'm in the gall of bitterness, which if I understand that right, is not a great place to be. If we're talking anatomically, which is kind of the idea here, you know, you're in like, like, the digestive nasty tract of grossness, right? You're in the gall of this. And so sin is a gross place to be in. But God, and that's, that's the key ingredient here, right, is God can forgive the iniquity. He can forgive the intent of your heart. And so while the church may not inherently be perfect, God is. And so if we plug him in to the solution, if we allow God to work on us, um, then we can be perfect. The reason I bring that principle up is sometimes, you know, we ex- and as we ought to, we have expectations of people, especially our brethren. We expect them to be spiritual. We expect them to be strong and grow, be faithful to the Lord. But we have to remember moments like this one where people slip up. You know, I slip up. You guys are going to slip up. We probably will slip up at some point in the near future. But we need to be grounded and humbled by this passage and just say, you know what, we're not perfect. We have to understand the church isn't going to be perfect because church is made up of people like me. But we can look at Acts chapter 8 and know that God can forgive us if we're willing to do what we need to do to repent. So these are kind of the seven principles I got out of these three chapters. I'll go over them again quickly. A church takes care of Christians in need. In a church, everyone has a role church listens to those around them. A church says what needs to be said. A church has life and death. A church doesn't restrict the gospel. And a church isn't perfect. Those are the seven principles I got out of these three chapters. Hopefully this was a helpful lesson for you.